ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. It takes a certain kind of mind to get into that field if you're going to be a financier of terrorism, and it takes a certain kind of mind to want to follow it. And I guess I fall on the ladder. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and as we continue special coverage of the Israel-Hamas war, we wanted to take some time today to talk about who we're talking about. Over the last four weeks, you've heard the name Hamas more times than you can count. So who are they? What does Hamas want? How do they fit into the larger, longer struggle and tensions that make up the story of Israel and Palestine, or the larger story of the Middle East and the modern world? For this conversation today, I'm joined by Jonathan Shanzer. He's the Senior Vice President for Research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, a nonpartisan think tank based in Washington, D.C. He's also the author of two books about Hamas, and he's a contributing editor at Commentary Magazine. Previously, he was a counterterrorism analyst at the U.S. Department of the Treasury, investigating how terror was financed around the world. Jonathan Shanzer, welcome to The Bulletin. Thank you very much. I'd love to actually start there so our listeners know a little bit about where you're coming from as we dive into this conversation. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with looking at terror financing? Yeah, my background actually was studying the Middle East in college. I found it fascinating. I took a couple of sort of strange turns working in journalism and advertising and at some point decided to go and study at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem to study Arabic, to study Hebrew, to get a sense of what was going on on the ground. Came back right before 9-11, actually, and all of a sudden I had a new career as a think tank professional. After a few years of working in think tanks, I really decided that I wanted to get some government experience and see how the U.S. government worked from the inside. And I found that my skills could be put to use at the Treasury. Back then, it was the height of the war on terror, We had a large team of people looking at all manner of terrorist groups. I happened to be one of the people tracking Hamas, as well as Al-Qaeda, in an attempt to cut off the funding of these and other terrorist groups all around the world. It's an effort that has gone through a number of changes over the years, but Treasury still lies at the forefront of this battle, and I suspect that it's probably heating up again right now. It's not easy to donate to Hamas, right? Like, I can't go online necessarily and just give them my credit card. What does terror financing actually look like? How does money get to these organizations? A lot of it is uh, done in cash. The term is bulk cash smuggling. So just bricks of dollars, you know, $100 bills uh, smuggled inside people's suitcases and in their clothes. There's a lot of bulk cash smuggling that takes place in tunnels right now that connect the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt to the Gaza Strip. 
There is trade-based money laundering, where you either overvalue or undervalue certain goods in order to provide additional benefit to the recipient uh, of whoever you're trying to assist. We see uh, illicit finance take the form of precious metals, which are often harder to detect. You could bring in a lot of jewelry, for example, from another country, and you don't necessarily have to declare. It might be harder for people to see. Suffice it to say, this is all done in ways designed to blind the officials that would be otherwise trying to stop it. It takes a huge amount of intelligence uh, work to try to listen in or watch to see what some of these individuals are doing. But really some of the more fascinating examples of this, I have to say in my years of watching it, or what I would call financial suicide bombers. These are the sorts of people that would go out and take out a large loan, for example, and they just never pay it back and ship the money off to, you know, the location wherever they're trying to support the terrorist group in question. Or in one case, several years back, I saw a man go out and take a huge loan to buy an apartment building. And rather than pay off the loan, what he started to do is to rent out the uh, the units within the apartment building. He put himself into bankruptcy, but he continued to take the cash from the people that were paying rent, and that money was going back to terrorist groups in the Middle East. So you can see there's a lot of creativity that goes into this. It takes a certain kind of mind to get into that field if you're going to be a financier of terrorism, and it takes a certain kind of mind to want to follow it. Mm-hmm. And I guess I fall on the ladder. It's a crime, right? I mean, if you get caught oh, funneling yeah. money to these folks, you go to jail. And that's kind of worldwide as well. I mean, there's not not a whole lot of places that smile on this sort of thing. No, of course not. It's illegal in most places. What's interesting, though, is that, you know, getting back to the question of Hamas, Hamas is not a designated terrorist organization at the United Nations, for example. So that leaves open the question of whether countries around the world want to accept Hamas as a terrorist organization, whether they want to brand it. So there are countries out there right now, I'm thinking about Iran, but also Qatar or Turkey or Malaysia, There are a handful of countries out there that treat uh, Hamas as a legitimate resistance organization. Resistance is the term that they use. They conveniently ignore the mass slaughter that we saw in 10-7 of 1,400 people. They conveniently ignore the fact that Hamas is engaged in the tactic of suicide bombings, which, of course, is beyond the pale. But they make carve-outs for their special projects, so to speak, and Hamas apparently is one of those. So, you know, you'll see this debate, unfortunately, continue to play out in the front pages of our newspapers, and you'll hear about on cable news networks as well, this sort of question of, well, you know, why is it that Hamas is seen in one light by some and in another light by others? It's part of the problem here. You know, Hamas has been legitimized by some with a very special interest. And it really has hurt the efforts to try to unify our country. For example, the U.S., you can see the fierce debates that are going on. Mm -hmm. But it's not helpful to see in other countries either. Talk to me about the origin story then. When does Hamas appear on the scene? Hamas first comes into the picture in 1998, just weeks before the organization announced itself Uh, We saw the outbreak of what was known as the Intifada, an asymmetric uprising against Israel. It actually began with a car accident where an Israeli jeep rear-ended a flatbread truck full of Gazan workers returning to the Gaza Strip after a day of working inside Israel. 
the custom in the Muslim world is to bury the dead immediately. And so the funeral processions turned into protests, and the protests spread from Gaza City to all of Gaza. And then from there, it spread into the West Bank. And Hamas was at the forefront of all of this. And over time, the tactics and strategies evolved. It wasn't just about throwing rocks or engaging in civil disobedience. They began to engage in overt acts of terror. And while this is happening, you watch the international community getting very nervous about what's happening. This leads the international community to try to find a Palestinian leader that they could work with to try to bring calm to the region. And the man who volunteers to do that is a guy named Yasser Arafat, who many people have heard of. He was the head of the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, which was based in Tunisia at the time. It had been exiled from Lebanon and from the Palestinian territories. And so while he's sitting there in Tunisia, he says, uh, guys, I'm willing to recognize Israel. And as long as I'm treated as the leader of the Palestinians, I'm willing to engage in a peace process. So he steps into the scene. He becomes the sort of widely recognized international figure for the Palestinian cause. And he tries to push Hamas out of the picture. Hamas is not happy about this, to put it mildly. And they begin a campaign of brutal violence designed to kill as many Israelis and as many Jews as possible, but also to try to destroy the peace process that Yasser Arafat has started. And right as the Palestinian Authority, as it's known, is starting to be stood up, you see uh, Hamas starting to carry out suicide bombings, something that had never been seen before. Lots of horrific attacks that are taking place in nightclubs, restaurants, shopping malls. It is just brutal, brutal violence. And this goes on throughout the 1990s, where Arafat is trying to create a Palestinian authority as sort of a proto-state on the one hand, and Hamas is trying to undermine that at every turn. It's important to note here that this is as much of a domestic political battle between Palestinian factions as it is a Palestinian-Israeli conflict, the way that most people would have cast it. But the bottom line is, is that Arafat does what he can for, let's say, those seven years from 1993 to 2000. And then there is an attempt to finalize the peace process, to end all claims on all sides. This is, you may recall, this was Bill Clinton pulling together Arafat and Ehud Barak, then prime minister of Israel. They go to Camp David, the presidential retreat in rural Maryland, and they try to get it done, but Arafat refuses. Instead, Arafat tries to become kind of a, another version of Hamas. I think he believes that that's what the Palestinian people want. I think he believes that this is the way to ensure his own legacy and his own popularity. And so then we see the outbreak of the second intifada. And that goes on for five years, more brutal violence carried out by all sides. The way that we sort of set things up to understand where we are now, it, it needs to be understood here that there was an election that the U.S. pushed for in 2006. After the Intifada ends, the Bush administration says, we need to bring democracy to the region. So they push for elections. They are promising up and down that Arafat's PLO, it's now run, Arafat died in 2005. A new guy comes in, his name is Mahmoud Abbas, saying Abbas is going to win. His faction, the Fatah faction, is going to win. And they lose. Hamas wins the election of 2006. 
The Israelis say, no way. The Americans say, no way. They do everything they can to uh, prevent Hamas from gaining power. And Hamas, in the year 2007, carries out a brutal civil war inside the Gaza Strip. Up until then, the Gaza Strip had been a Palestinian Authority entity. After 2007, Hamas emerges victorious. There are hundreds of Palestinians that are killed, many more that are injured. It was a brutal war from within the Palestinian political scene. But the bottom line is, is Hamas uh, all, all of a sudden emerges as the sovereign in the Gaza Strip. There are now two Palestinian entities, the West Bank, controlled by the PLO, and Hamas remains control of the Gaza Strip. Since then, this is the sixth war since the Hamas takeover. There was one in 2008, then 2012, then 2014, then 2021, and now this. Each time, Hamas has gotten stronger and more violent and more capable. And this explains, to a certain extent, where we are now. So if we go all the way back to 88, Hamas emerges then. Uh, in Pakistan, you have al-Qaeda emerging around that time. Talk to me about terror as a political strategy, as a political tactic. Can you describe what gave rise to that? What was the motivating power behind the emergence of the suicide bomber, the, the willingness to get on buses in Tel Aviv and kill women and children? It's a great question. The story is actually a fascinating one. By the early 1990s, mid-1990s, the Israelis are clearly alarmed about this new violent group that is attacking them, trying to undermine this peace process, which by all accounts was just a miraculous thing in the first place, that there was this window that had opened for ending the conflict after decades of misery. And so the Israelis don't know what to do with Hamas. And at one point, they are able to arrest a number of the leaders and they put them in exile. They say, you're getting out of the West Bank, you're getting out of the Gaza Strip, we don't want you here anymore. And they cast them out into the Middle East. And they make their way to Lebanon, where they meet with Hezbollah. And Hezbollah was actually the inventor of the suicide bombing. You may recall there was a suicide attack that took out American Marines in 1983. It was a Marine barracks bombing, as we call it. And it was an Iranian Hezbollah invention to carry out an attack in this way. And so Hezbollah teaches Hamas the way of the suicide bomber. This is, of course, you know, heavily influenced by Shiite radical Islamic doctrine. So these Hamas guys come back. They find their way back into the territories and they begin to wield this tactic as well. It is, by all accounts, just a brutal tactic that you know no one really knows how to stop. The only way that the Israelis were able to do so was the building of large barriers around the Gaza Strip and around the West Bank. And it's interesting. I mean, of course, it was that barrier that was penetrated on the 10-7 uh, attack, right? You have Hamas guys blow up pieces of that wall and, and actually tear down parts of it with heavy machinery. And that enables them to cross over into Israel and carry out the attacks that led to the murder of 1,400 people. In the West Bank, a similar barrier is built. It's not 100% complete even to this day, but it has severely curtailed uh, the traffic from the West Bank into Israel. But now, as a result of the barriers that Israel built, really in self-defense, in an attempt to try to prevent 
additional suicide bombings from taking place. They built this, by the way, during the second intifada, that second round of war from 2000 to 2005. But now Israel is being decried as an apartheid state for having separated themselves from the territories that are disputed by both sides. And so you get a sense, actually, from that alone. It's the innovation of the suicide bomber brought into the region by Iran that ultimately prompts Israel to build a wall. And now that wall is the subject of you know, intense scrutiny from an international law perspective, and it looms large in every public debate about the conflict, you just get a sense that there's just no way to win here, right? You try to cut down on the violence and look at what happens as a result. It's maddening for Israelis, but it's also maddening for Palestinians that would like to just go about their lives. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned Iran then. It'd be good to draw the connections then. So you've got Hezbollah and Lebanon. You've got Iran. What's Iran's investment in Hamas? Or for that matter, what's Iran's investment in Hezbollah? Why do they care about this conflict so much? It's really a marriage of convenience with Hamas. And it's a little bit different with Hezbollah, which I would call a wholly owned subsidiary of Iran. So with Hamas, the history is interesting. The Iranians have been arming and training and funding Hamas since the early 1990s, since very soon after the group was founded. The support, the partnership even, can really just be described as the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So in other words, Hamas has come out and it's declared open war against Israel. So, you know, Iran says, great, we'll fund you, we'll arm you, we'll train you. In a really fascinating little anecdote, in the 1990s, Sudan was a significant state sponsor of terrorism, and they used to hold these conferences where they would bring together, you know, Hezbollah, Hamas, Al-Qaeda, train them all, work with them all. You could see early on that there was this sort of tight-knit group of Shiite and Sunni Muslims that wanted to work together in furtherance of two goals, the destruction of the United States and the erosion of the U.S.-led world order is number one. Number two, the destruction of the state of Israel. And so support for Hamas has only grown over time. Today, Iran probably provides somewhere between 150 and $200 million a year to the organization that provide the bulk of the weapons, a lot of training, a lot of technical assistance. The support is ongoing. Now, Hezbollah, you know, created in the early 1980s is very different. It was created truly by the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. These are the sort of special forces of the Iranian military and the people that are truly responsible for exporting Iran's revolution, in other words, exporting terrorism around the world. There, it is really like a uh, patron-client or even a proxy relationship. I mean, we have seen over the years that, uh, for example, when the Arab Spring broke out and the Assad regime in Syria came under fire from its own people, Iran dispatched Hezbollah to defend the regime in Syria. In other words, they just said, this is your job, go do it. And that is not what happens with Hamas. Hamas has a little bit more independence, not a lot more but enough where at least they can weigh the requests of Iran and not accept them as orders. They often do what Iran wants, but it's not often that command and salute type of relationship. But with Hezbollah, the bottom line is is that uh, they get something like $800 million a year, so almost four times what Hamas gets. They get all of their funding. They get advanced weaponry from Iran. They're right now, they are stockpiling what are known as PGMs, or precision-guided munitions. 
These are very precise rockets that could be quite deadly depending on what you're trying to target. Imagine you target a chemical plant or the nuclear facility in Dimona or something along those lines. It could be extremely harmful for Israel. You could be looking really at the beginning of a catastrophic war or something like that were to occur. Hezbollah has around 200,000 rockets by last count, all provided by Iran. Hezbollah has fought and embedded with the Iranian military and also the Russian military. So it's a very powerful terrorist organization bringing us to where we are today. Hezbollah has not entered the war completely. In other words, it's not a full-blown conflict zone, but right now we are watching somewhere around 20 different anti-tank missile attacks per day as a result of these strikes. Hezbollah is dangerously close to pushing the current crisis into a multi-front war. What do you think has held that back? Is it the U.S. carrier groups? I think so, yeah. Certainly the fact that the U.S. has two carrier strike groups in the region, one in the Med and one in the Persian Gulf, and that the U.S. has explicitly warned both Iran and Hezbollah to stay out. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that in Lebanon, the people remember what happened in 2006. That was the last time these two enemies crossed swords. And it's actually amazing. I mean, at the time, Hezbollah was doing sort of very similar things, you know, pushing the Israelis, testing their patience. And slowly but surely, things devolved into a full-scale war. And the amount of damage that Lebanon sustained as a result of that war, it's hard to quantify. I mean, I, I've heard numbers like $3.5 billion worth of reconstruction needs. But it was more than that because the people of Lebanon are being held hostage by Hezbollah. This is a non-state actor that is operating as almost a state within the state. It's very similar to what you see with Hamas in the Gaza Strip. This is a terrorist group that is now holding 2.2 million people hostage. Hezbollah has been holding 5 million people hostage. This has really been done at the behest of the Iranians in large part. And so you've got entire chunks of the Middle East, entire populations that are living with this nightmare scenario of an Iran-backed actor calling the shots and bringing destruction upon the population. So there are attempts right now, I don't know how successful they'll be, but there are attempts by the Lebanese population to try to prompt Hezbollah and Iran to tone it down. I don't know if it's ever going to succeed here, but you are seeing some politicians at least try to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. When you look back at the elections in 06, Hamas wins, Fatah loses. What was the case Hamas made to the Palestinian people? Corruption. It's quite simple. And I've done a lot of work on this. You know, I mean, I've obviously been focused a lot on Hamas for the last 30 days. I've done a lot of work on the other side of the Palestinian divide. And Mahmoud Abbas the current president of the Palestinian Authority, who I mentioned, came in after Arafat died in 2005. At the time, he was seen as this sort of savior, the guy that was going to take the Palestinians in a more moderate direction. Arafat, of course, had cut his teeth as the PLO leader who was responsible for all manner of hijackings and terrorist attacks throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. He wasn't exactly the guy that was going to come into this peace process with clean hands. And when he chose the Intifada of 2000 to 2005 rather than peace, that was kind of the moment where the U.S. said, we're done with this guy. We need to find somebody else. So they bring in Mahmoud Abbas, 
And Abbas seems like he's going to be the answer. He looks more like my accountant, right, than a guy like Arafat, who, if you recall, used to walk around with fatigues and a gun in his holster, and he wore a black and white checkered keffiyeh over his head with sunglasses. And the whole image that he tried to craft for himself was one of a militant. Abbas, again, he looked like my accountant, wears a tie and a suit, and just a, a very different mentality. But when Hamas starts running for office. He says, look at these guys. They've been taking hundreds of millions of dollars a year from the United States and the international community. Show us what they have delivered. Show us how that money has gone to improve the lives of Palestinians themselves. Show us that this isn't corruption. And what they say is we are the clean governance people. We are the people that are looking out for all of you. We have out of our own pockets Out of our own money, we've created schools and hospitals and sports, youth centers, all manner of, they call it zakat, it's charity, right? Hamas has built up a reputation for providing these services to the people. You know, they're kind of like the community organizers, if you will. Except there's a problem here that I guess the Palestinians weren't really thinking about. And, you know, certainly... Uh, I think it was a mistake on Israel's part to allow the elections to happen. It's, you know, what happens if they win, right? And all of a sudden you've got a U.S. designated terrorist organization that is, you know, poised to take control over a government that America backs. America can't allow this to happen. It's a full-blown political crisis. You cannot continue to fund the Palestinian Authority if it is being run by an organization that you've already t- decreed to be a terrorist group, and for good reason. And so this explains the sort of conundrum of the 2006 elections. There are, by the way, still people out there who will say, well, you know, Hamas is the legitimate leader of the Palestinians, and they were robbed of their ability to govern. And this explains why they're still the legitimate organization fighting for Palestinian rights. It's kind of hard to explain that the U.S. made a grievous error in the first place. And that's on America's shoulders that this happened. Uh, But the fact that this happened in 2006 does not excuse the civil war that broke out a year later with the slaughter of Palestinians. It doesn't include the five rounds of fighting that we've seen since then, the thousands of rockets that Hamas has fired into Israel blindly in the hopes of hitting civilian infrastructure or worse. That is a war crime. Uh, and certainly what we saw on 10-7, the slaughter of 1,400 Israelis and the kidnapping of another 242 innocent civilians. This is inexcusable, and there is nothing historically that has happened with Hamas or to Hamas that would ever justify this kind of activity. What you've seen unfold in the time since they took power, that they've been no stranger to corruption and wealth of their own. I mean— Hamas's leaders are living in luxury in Qatar right now, while the Palestinians are acting as human shields in Gaza. You look at these movements, I'm primarily somebody who does religion reporting and looks at churches and what's going on in spirituality in North America. But I can't get away from this idea that so much of the challenge, I think, in front of, really in front of the world with this war, with this conflict, is a challenge of culture. I kind of buy into Lawrence Wright's 
description of some of this, where he talks about how there's this disillusionment of the whole secular project and part of the appeal of fundamentalist Islam. And you see this in America. You see this with people who get really excited about things like doomsday cults or extremist religions of various kinds in North America. There's kind of this promise of through radicalism, through something that's violent and extreme, it's like it promises this transcendent experience that the rest of life has been pretty disappointing about to a certain extent or another. And no doubt for the average Palestinian, particularly the average Palestinian living in Gaza, life is pretty miserable. So so how do you think about the day after this for people who are so all they've known is poverty, all they've known is war, all they've known is from their leaders is it's grievance, solve the grievance, solve the issue. How do you even begin to address that when that's the entrenched spiritual, cultural reality? It's a pretty profound question, and I'll try to take chunks of it. There's a lot in there. They are among the things that make all of this so thorny and difficult to untangle. Look, there is a jihadist milieu that continues to hold resonance among the Muslim world the global South or something, right? I mean, these are the sorts of things that you hear about the different standard of living among the Muslim world. uh, And that does explain a certain amount of Hamas's popularity. There's also, I think, Hamas is a beast forged of both Palestinian nationalism and Islamism, which makes it that much stronger and much harder to pull apart, right? They've got two very powerful elements that appeal to a lot of people. But I would say that when you think about the day after, I think about two things. One is I think there are ways to probably turn Gaza into a gleaming city. It could become the Singapore of the Middle East if the Emiratis and the Saudis, both of whom are at this point very familiar with the Israelis, you could imagine that they could undertake the rebuilding of Gaza and it could become just a spectacular place. It would cost, you know, I don't know, 10, 20 billion dollars, which is probably a rounding error for some of these countries. Massive oil wealth, unimaginable oil wealth. So I think there are going to need to be some thoughts put into this. How do you fix this problem, you know, as an economic one, as a physical one, as opposed to the mentalities that you've just described, the ideologies that you've just described. that The ideologies are the harder part of this to untangle. How do you delegitimize Hamas over time? I will say the defeat of Hamas, a square beating of Hamas, which I believe is being administered right now, might begin to turn Palestinians away from this. I mean, one of the appeals of Islamism is that it's actually never been fully destroyed, right? Hamas... It's just one of the many groups that have embraced this ideology, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. It's that many of these groups continue to at least purport to exist. Mm-hmm. Critics of the war have said things like, all that's going to happen coming out of Israel's assault on Gaza is you're just going to radicalize more people. Look, first of all, I don't know what radicalizing means. You could engender hatred. Yeah, you could invite more people to hate Israel, but it also could invite more people to fear Israel knowing that this is what happens. If you slaughter 1,400 people in one day, there will be a heavy, heavy toll. And I do wonder whether that kind of deterrence is going to be established after this. People will not forget this moment in time for quite a while. And I think that's what the Israelis intend. 
But let me actually just add one more thing when we talk about the day after, because when we talk about sort of the ideological and cultural and religious takeaways from all of this, I, you know, when I watch the protests right now on campus and around major cities around the world, and I see people waving the Hamas flag, I am struck by the fact that these are people that are essentially advocating for a movement that is imbued with jihadist violence backed by Iran's vision of revolutionary Islam, which would entail the destruction of the West and the Western-led system that the U.S. has built over the last seven, eight decades. It is anti-Semitic at its core, this organization. When you read its charter, the anti-Semitism comes through loud and clear. It is unambiguous. And lastly, it is an organization that is annihilationist. It seeks the destruction of a country of 10 million people. I have real questions about what is happening in America when people are waving that flag. You get a sense that they've lost a sense of morality. They've lost their sense of God, of ethics. I mean, these are things that trouble me when I think about, you know, where is America after this? When I look at the sheer number of people that are out there calling for, you know, they're saying Palestine from the river to the sea. That is a euphemism for annihilation of another country. You always have to ask yourself, how did we get here? But it certainly begs that question right now. For folks who are watching this and they're going, man, you see two carrier groups going, you see threats looming from this place and that place. To what extent do you think we're at risk of America being drawn into a larger conflict right now? It's certainly possible. Look, we've deployed our assets to the region. The president has warned Iran and Hezbollah that if they try to engage in a wider war, that they will pay a price. That is a clear threat. And then we've also seen American servicemen come under attack in places like Iraq from Iranian-backed Shiite militias, PMUs as they're known, popular mobilization units. And the U.S. has responded with strikes. Look, the region is on a razor's edge. There's no question about it, right? The Hamas war, if the U.S. and Israel have their way, this war will be fought in isolation from the rest of the region. If Iran has its way, it will draw in multiple other actors from, you know, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and perhaps other jurisdictions as well. Their aim is to try to turn this into a regional battle against both Israel and the United States. There are different visions for how this war should end and how it should be prosecuted in the interim. They're very different. They are diametric in many ways. I think that as long as the U.S. and Israel continue to coordinate and work together, I think that's a good thing. You do get a sense that the U.S. is trying to distance itself from exactly what Israel does in the Gaza Strip because, of course, it's, you know, it's war. Things can happen that are unplanned, right? It's the law of unintended consequences. This is simply what happens during times of conflict. But I do get a sense that the U.S. has cast its lot with Israel the Biden administration continues to support Israel's right to defend itself, which I think is the right thing to do. But we are heading into an election year, and a, another war in the Middle East would not be popular. And I am sure that the president has that weighing on his mind right now, as do his, his election advisors. 
So it will be a fascinating time to watch this. But again, I think the hope here is that Israel is able to remove this one particular threat from Gaza and that uh, there will be an attempt to rebuild Gaza in a much different way than what we've seen in the past. Unfortunately, though, I do think there are probably other battles that lie ahead. But, you know, again, the hope is we just deal with this one now and deal with the other ones later on down the line. Well, Jonathan Chanzer, thanks so much for making time for us. I've appreciated your work on this. We'll be linking to that in our show notes. Thanks for joining us on The Bulletin. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. This episode was produced by Mike Cosper, Clarissa Mall, and Matt Stevens. Post-production by David Lachance. Graphic design by Rick Schiffes. Social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with our regular episode. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.